0: I'm going to show you how great I am. This was our fighting power. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. Hello, and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. This is part two on the life of William Randolph Hearst. And just to catch you up with where we were at, in case you forgot, Last time we saw how William, who was the son of a wealthy California miner, ends up taking over his father's failing newspaper in San Francisco and ends up turning it around into a very successful and and the biggest newspaper in San Francisco. And then he goes out to New York. He takes over a paper called The Journal and makes it the most successful newspaper in New York. And when we had left off, Hearst was just finished being a sort of armed war correspondent in Cuba during the Spanish-American War. In part two, We'll examine the expansion of his media empire, dive into his politics and how he became one of the most important political figures of the 20th century. And of course, through it all, we'll talk about how he did it, how he was so successful. I think this is an amazing story of someone who took money and turned it into power and influence. So we'll get into all that. But before we do, here's a brief word from one of our sponsors. So when William comes home from the Spanish-American War, home from Cuba, you might think that he would be ecstatic because... It was a big success in terms of generating publicity, increasing readership of his newspapers. If you remember, he captures these Spanish prisoners, and that makes him something of a hero. The reporting is first rate. It seems on the surface like everything is going well. But he was not ecstatic or elated when he came home. He was actually devastated. Here's what he had to say. I'm quoting a letter that he wrote to his mom. He said, I guess I'm a failure. I made the mistake of my life in not raising the cowboy regiment I had in mind before Roosevelt raised his. I really believe I brought on the war, but I failed to score in the war. I had my chance and failed to grab it, and I suppose I must sit on the fence now and watch the procession go by. It's my own fault. I was 35 years of age and of sound mind, comparatively, and could do as I liked. I failed, and I'm a failure, and I deserve to be, for being as slow and stupid as I was. Outside of the grief that it would give you, it had better to be in a Santiago trench than where I am now. Okay, so very heavy stuff from William Randolph Hearst right there. I wish I was dead, mom. Sounds like a like an emo kid. And what's getting him so emotional, so down about this? Well, it's not his own performance, which was actually great. It's seeing Teddy Roosevelt and what he did during the Spanish-American War. So Teddy Roosevelt wasn't much of anybody before this, but he had taken his Rough Riders regiment and made a national hero of himself by charging the Spanish on San Juan Hill. And Hearst himself had first had the idea before the war to raise a volunteer regiment. And he had asked President McKinley, who said no, and he didn't push it. He just let it go. And now he sees Roosevelt, who he absolutely hates and loathes, becoming a hero and realizes that he had the same opportunity and missed it. And he understands that this is going to launch Roosevelt into national stardom and he can probably already tell that he's headed for the presidency and that kills him because the truth of the matter is he wasn't trying to build a media empire just in order to have a business empire. This wasn't his primary objective to make money. He was trying to have influence and power, especially through politics. There's this line from Francis Ford Coppola. You can always understand the story of the son by the story of the father. Shout out to David Senra, who always uses that line. And sons are always trying to complete the unfinished business of their father. You see this in the life, for example, of George W. Bush, who feels that his father had unfinished business in Iraq. So he goes and invades Iraq. I know that's an oversimplification, but it certainly seems like that was at play in his psychology. And you see this with William Randolph Hearst as well. His father had come into politics late in life, had struggled for a long time as a Democrat in California and had not had much success until finally becoming a senator right before he died prematurely, before his full political ambitions could be realized. And so Hearst kind of wants to complete those political ambitions. He wants to finish that unfinished business. He wants to be very influential politically. And really, he wants to be president of the United States. So as a precursor to running for president, he needs his voice heard outside of California and New York, the current place where he has newspapers. So he establishes a newspaper in Chicago, the first democratic paper in the city. He actually has to bring in some gangsters to rough up the newsboys because they don't want to carry his paper. They're afraid to carry the competitor of the biggest paper in town, the Chicago Tribune, which is pressuring them to not sell Hearst's paper. But, you know, he brings in his muscle. They rough him up a little bit. They tell him, hey, you better carry this paper. And all right, the newsboys start selling uh, his his Chicago paper as well. He implements his usual playbook in Chicago. And immediately the paper starts doing really well, boosted by the fact that it's the first Democratic paper. People are kind of ready for it. So he wants to enter politics. He's got these newspapers. He's got money. He's got connections and friends inside the Democratic Party. And so he starts trying to find somewhere where he can fit in and they end up getting him a congressional seat. He's basically appointed. They have this big party machine that I've talked about called Tammany Hall, which is a big center of politics, get out the vote efforts, also corruption for Democrats in New York City. And so the Tammany bosses decide, okay, you can have the nomination for this Democratic seat. And it's a very, very heavily Democratic district. So whoever gets nominated is going to win. So here's the nomination. And he's a shoo-in. He doesn't have to campaign in the general election. He doesn't have to make a big show of it, make a big thing of it. But he does. He has these huge campaign rallies with fireworks, huge meals, outdoor parades, bands. And everywhere, he's talking about defending unions and the working man, ending the trusts, which were these corrupt public monopolies that controlled public utilities like water, ice, and gas. And in his biggest speech, he has these electric bulbs behind him. And remember, electric lighting is pretty new at this point. So he's got these electric lights that spell out, Congress must control the trusts. And that was his big message. And he was very on message, very on brand. Control the trusts. And this works. It gets him a national profile. And it's very smart of him to build his profile before he runs for president. It essentially allows him to get his message out unopposed. He's got the microphone in this district and no one is going to debate him or contradict him. So when the election comes, he cleans up his district even more than is normal for a Democrat. He wins in a huge, huge landslide victory. The only thing that mars this victory is he has a big victory party near Madison Square, and he has a huge fireworks display. And unfortunately, those fireworks catch fire. They ignite all at the same time before they launch, and they explode, which essentially creates a bomb. A dozen people are killed, and hundreds are maimed or wounded. Uh, You read the descriptions, and it's like, Saving Private Ryan, people are walking around bloodied and maimed. People are missing arms and legs. It's awful. And so obviously this goes against his message, which is I'm for the working people. I'm the common man. And it's like, no, you're actually so rich and so hubristic that you killed working men with your enormous, extravagant, unnecessary fireworks display. So that is a mark against him, but he tries to put it behind him. He goes off to Washington, D.C. and serves as a congressman. He's very influential in large part because of all his money and his newspapers. And he creates a big stir around these very progressive issues of labor unions, workers' rights and busting the trusts. The only flaw in this plan is that as he's doing this, he's sort of sticking his thumb in the eye of the very people who helped get him elected in the first place. He's making an enemy of Tammany Hall because they rely on these trusts to make their money. That's how they do their corruption. That's how they launder their money is through these big public monopolies. So he's, he's getting very popular in Congress, but he's also making some enemies. Well, he was never very patient and he always liked to move fast, so he decides to run for president only two years after being elected to Congress. And of the people planning to run for president as Democrats, he's basically the only person who represents the radical William Jennings Bryan wing of the party. If you remember, William Jennings Bryan is this firebrand who delivers very impassioned speeches about working people, the forgotten man. And this is the wing that the democratic party is a little bit embarrassed of the people that they don't want to embrace. And so the democratic machine is not going to be very supportive of Hearst. So he starts to think, all right, well, why do I need these people anyway? I have my newspapers. I can go directly to the people, the voters by publishing in my newspapers. So he makes kind of a Donald Trump appeal. He says, look, listen, guys, I'm a rich businessman. I have all this money. I won't be beholden to anyone else. I won't need to do all this corruption so I can just do the right thing. I can fight for the people and not for the trust, not for big business, because I can afford to. And so that's his popular message. He wants to get it out to even more people. So while he's campaigning for president, he establishes newspapers in Los Angeles and Boston to help him get the message out there as well. Now his plan for the nomination is basically, all right, I'm going to pick up all of William Jennings Bryan's contingent of the party. And that's strongest in the West and in the Midwest. And then I'm from New York so I can use the journal, my newspaper, to pick up support in New York and that should be a winning coalition. That should be enough. And at first, this seems to work. His message is deeply unpopular with businesses, with financial interests, with those who tend to supply the money that supports the Democratic Party. But it's very, very popular with the voters and he's gaining more and more support. In the last episode, I compared William Jennings Bryan to Donald Trump as this kind of toxic personality with a radical message. But in many ways, William Randolph Hearst is even more like Trump. He's an outsider businessman with questionable morals who absolutely dominates every news cycle with a radical message that is completely uh, wrong, anathema, inappropriate to proper society, right? If, If you go to a cocktail party in New York and you say, I'm a big Trump supporter, uh, imagine the kind of reaction you're going to get. That is the kind of reaction you would have got if you had said, I'm, I'm a big Hearst supporter. And similar to Donald Trump, he is a genius of self-promotion and he's kind of creating this cult of personality. So there are a lot of people, especially powerful people who just hate him, can't stand him. The rest of the media can't stand him. But he also has these really, really fanatical supporters as well who will do anything for him. So the comparisons are very strong between Hearstism and kind of Trumpism, and so similar to when Trump first started running in 2015, people are freaking out, saying we got to stop this guy at all costs. He's horrible. He's going to destroy America. He's going to destroy the republic. One of the main things that they try and hit him with is his reputation as a playboy. They're like, oh, he's going to have poker games and boxing matches in the White House. You know, remember he lived with a waitress in San Francisco, and he actually had just married uh, a woman. Her name was Millicent Wilson. But she was a chorus girl, right? So uh, not not exactly the stuff that first ladies were usually made of. So they're attacking his personal life. They're attacking his rabble-rousing, radical left-wing politics. But they can't stop him. His message is just so appealing. So in the first primary, which back then was Rhode Island, he wins six of eight delegates. So he wins the first primary. And then he starts winning more and more primaries. And he's the front runner. And it looks like he's headed to victory for the nomination for the presidency in 1904. And then they get to New York. And New York is his home state. You know, supposedly he should do well in New York. He's got a lot of support there. A lot of people love the journal. He's got fanatical, radical support. The problem is New York is the center for corruption in the Democratic Party, right? This is where Tammany Hall is located. And it's the place where they're handing out all these corrupt contracts, these trusts. And so he's really alienated these party bosses. They have this big get out the vote machinery, you know, vote early, vote often. And so when it gets to New York, which is by far the most populous state at this time in America, he gets zero delegates. He's hugely popular and he completely loses. He gets nothing from New York. And it's because of Tammany Hall and their chicanery. And so this is a a huge blow. So it's not good, but he's still got a shot. And the key for him to pick up momentum again is... William Jennings Bryan, who he had been William Jennings Bryan's main supporter, the only one who really stood by him when no one else would in the last election cycle. And so William Jennings Bryan is going to give this big speech. It's, you know, all the newspapers are going to be there. Everyone's going to cover it. And Hearst thinks that they have an agreement that he's going to endorse him. So he sends all these supporters to go cheer for him at the speech and he gives the speech and it's going and it's going and he's not mentioning Hearst and he's not mentioning Hearst. And then it ends and he never endorses William Randolph Hearst. And so what becomes clear is that he's thinking, okay, well, since people can't really consolidate behind Hearst, maybe there will be a deadlocked convention and I will emerge as the compromise candidate. He's still thinking he's got a chance to be president. And so the fact that he gives this big speech and he doesn't endorse William Randolph Hearst, it sinks his chances. It's basically over after that. So William Jennings Bryan, Traitor, absolute traitor. And so with this, Hearst has no shot. He ends up losing the nomination to an old school vanilla Democrat by the name of Alton, Judge Alton. And so Judge Alton faces off against Teddy Roosevelt in the general election. And it's one of the biggest blowouts in American presidential history. Teddy wins by 20 percentage points. And everyone afterwards kind of realizes, man, the Democratic Party is broken. and needs to be fixed. We can't keep running it this way. I think people realize that someone like Hearst with a populist message would have had a better shot against Teddy Roosevelt uh, than this vanilla corrupt Democrat, Judge Alton. So Hearst is shattered that he has failed in his big dream, and he has a little bit of a mental breakdown, has to go on a month-long vacation, but he hasn't still given up on it entirely. He just thinks, all right, well, I got to regroup, and uh, the presidency is still awaiting. When he comes back from his vacation, Hearst realizes what he needs to do. The reason that he lost was the machinations of the corrupt democratic party center in Tammany hall. And so he decides I need to destroy Tammany hall. And so he decides the best way to do that is to run for mayor where he can cancel all their corrupt contracts, uh, deprive them of their money and starve them out. So he runs for mayor as a third party candidate, as neither a Republican nor a Democrat, he creates his own party called the municipal ownership league. The idea being the city is going to own all these services water, gas, ice, uh, instead of these trusts. And this is a huge long shot and a big risk, right? Because just like today, almost every race is just Republicans versus Democrats. Third party candidates usually come way in last place. And if he does, if he comes way in last place, it's just going to destroy his reputation as a viable national political figure. You you, You can't run for president if you run for mayor of New York and come in a distant third. So the stakes are high uh, but he gets out he uses his newspapers to get his message out and of course he's running on his same antitrust, anti-monopoly message and once again it's hugely successful people are going wild for it he has these big rallies big parties thousands of people cheering wildly at the slightest excuse mega fans that are following him from rally to rally he goes a little lighter on the fireworks this time as you might imagine now there's a good quote that describes it uh it says mr Hearst had a reception so enthusiastic in its cheers so fanatical in its appearance of devotion, so vigorous in its declaration of voting for him, that all the calculations of politicians about New York were upset. In other words, uh, people figured, okay, Hearst, he's not running as a major party candidate, he's gonna come in a distant third, but all of a sudden they're seeing the level of support he has and they think, all right, well, actually, I don't know what's gonna happen this election. And in fact, he's doing so well that his opponents start kind of uh, conspiring together to stop him. So the Republicans basically drop out They say, it's looking like Hearst might win. So don't vote for the Republican candidate, Republicans. Vote for the Democrat. Better him than Hearst. Hearst is the worst guy in the world. Uh, He's this socialist. And even the socialists disavow him. They're like, no, no, no. This guy's not a socialist. Look at him. He's a business guy. He owns all these huge businesses. He's not advocating for, for true socialism. He's not one of ours. And so it's really Hearst against the world. All the powers that be are trying to stop him. And listen to how vitriolic and extreme they are about it. Uh, One of the main Democratic speakers, this Tammany Hall politician, uh, gets out and gives a speech, and he says, Hearst represents every appeal to passion that we have observed during the last nine years, every incitement to murder, every encouragement to riot, every disposition to array class against class, every assault upon property, and every insinuation against virtue. He's an apostle of riot, an advocate of disorder, a promoter of socialism. His election would be such a pronouncement of anarchy and riot that the very foundations of society would be shattered and the whole fabric of social order reduced to ruin so again this is like apocalyptic language the world is going to end if you elect william randolph hearst as mayor and despite all these histrionics it becomes clear he's gonna win he's in the lead people love him they love this message and they're tired of the republicans and the democrats so the day comes election day and he's going to win and he sends out his election officials to go monitor the election. That's what campaigns do. So you have your poll workers and they go to the polls where people vote and they monitor it to make sure that nothing fishy is going on. And it's not long before these poll workers start coming back to campaign headquarters and they've got bruised and bloody faces and bodies. They've got broken arms and legs and fingers. One person comes in with his finger chewed off. uh, And this is, Tammany Hall's magnum opus. This is their piece de resistance, their peak achievement. They steal this election so shamelessly that even their supporters are a little bit embarrassed. They're they're bringing people, they're just not even hiding the fact that they're just having people cycle through and vote time and time again. And they just uh, manufacture ballots. They turn away Hearst voters. They do everything they can. And yes, uh, at the end of the day, they steal the election. And even newspapers who days before were saying, The election of Hearst would lead to absolute anarchy are saying, all right, this is this is kind of embarrassing. This election was obviously stolen. But Hearst is such a toxic figure that no one's willing to do anything about it. So he loses. Uh, But some good does come of it. Uh, What it does is it essentially forced Democrats to moderate their corruption. They realized, okay, if someone like Hearst can run on an anti-corruption message and gain so much popular support, then we can't just keep doing this. We have to limit the amount of corruption in our city government. And so this spells kind of the beginning of the end for Tammany Hall, definitely not the end, the end, but things start to unwind from there. And it kind of leads to the rise of the modern New York city, which is, let's be honest, not completely free from corruption, but it's certainly miles ahead from where it was 110 years ago. So having lost, but having sort of been legitimized in his loss, Hearst decides, okay, I'm going to take one more run at this. And he runs for governor of the state of New York next. And this time he doesn't run on an independent ticket. He runs as a Democrat and basically gets the Democrats to endorse him, let him run as a Democrat by saying, look, if you don't make me your nominee, I'm going to run third party again and spoil your chances. And so they say, OK, and uh, Hearst is the Democratic candidate for the governor of New York. And basically the same thing replays again. Republicans hate him. Democrats hate him, pretend to kind of not hate him, but but really they despise him. And uh, again, same thing. He's doing really well. He's coming out ahead. And at the last minute, the Republicans go thermonuclear. It was an unwritten rule back then that presidents of the United States did not intervene in state elections. They were supposed to be above it all. They're supposed to be a unifying force. Well, Teddy Roosevelt, who's the president, loathes and hates Hearst so much that he decides to break this rule. It's too important to pass up this election. So he has a representative go out and give a speech for him. He still maintains the fig leaf of not showing up himself, but his representative gives a speech and says, I am speaking on behalf of the president. And he says about Hearst quote, he is the most potent single influence for evil that we have in our day. He also says that he considers Hearst quote, complicit in the assassination of president William McKinley. So let me explain that a little bit. Hearst had been opposed to McKinley, who was president of the United States and a Republican. And his papers had written a lot of articles opposing him, but crucially. While he was president, a governor, a governor-elect, actually, in Kentucky was assassinated. And when he was killed, one of Hearst's writers basically says, that bullet should have been for President McKinley. He says, it's too bad, but if assassination is the only way to remove bad politicians, then assassinations there will be. So, you know, at the very least, he's being kind of flippant about this assassination. And at the most, uh, he's kind of encouraging the assassination of President McKinley. So later when President McKinley is indeed assassinated by an anarchist, Republicans try to blame it on Hearst and his writers and his papers, but especially on William Randolph Hearst himself. Now, this anarchist who shot McKinley, he barely spoke English. He couldn't have read any Hearst newspapers if he wanted to. So the idea that Hearst or his writers inspired him to kill McKinley is kind of ridiculous, but still the stink, of this assassination kind of sticks to him and Republicans really try and make it stick. Even still, uh, with Teddy Roosevelt coming in off the top rope at the very last second, the race is really tight and Hearst might have won, but once again, Tammany Hall thwarts him. They refuse to use their party machinery to turn out the vote in New York City. They kind of sit out the election and so he narrowly loses to his Republican adversary in the race for governor. And with that, Hearst decided that he was basically snake bit And his ambitions as a politician were basically over after that. And these three races taken together, his run for president, mayor, and governor, reveal his fatal flaw as a politician. He was amazing at self-promotion, at using his newspapers, his magazines, and his movies to create a movement that people really believed in and could get behind. And he was great at getting his message across and making sure that you couldn't avoid it. You had to know what Hearst stood for because his message was, present everywhere. But what he was not good at was playing nice with others. And this refusal to play party politics, to include others, and to defer to the Democratic Party machine, that's what made him lose all these different races. And so uh, there's a lesson to be learned there that, you know, using the tools, the media tools that Hearst used, you can create a political movement, but you have to be willing on a certain level to play with the powers that be and at least pretend to get along with them. So that's something Hearst was not good at. You know, he probably could have won some of these races if he had been willing to go to the party bosses at Tammany hall and either compromise a little bit or do what FDR did, which was just lie and say that he would cut them in and then cut them out once he held power. So his strategy could have been a little bit better around that. And, uh, and he loses those races. So in the 19 teens, he goes back to focusing on building his media empire and still having an influence on politics and policy, but doing it behind the scenes as a funder and as a media guy who gets his message out through his newspapers and other uh, media entities. So speaking of his media empire, he's been losing money basically this entire time. After his last run for governor, he decides, okay, I'm going to focus on this. He turns his papers around a little bit and they start making him some money. They're doing really well. He also expands into film with newsreels that run before feature films. He starts a publishing company to publish full-length books. And through all of this, he's utilizing what we'd call today synergy. So his weekday papers would carry a story and then the newsreel would come out the next day and it would be playing in movie theaters before a feature film. And then his Sunday papers would carry an extended illustrated version, a more in-depth version of the story that had been the weekday papers. And then if that did well, Uh, He had Hearst International Publishers that might take the story and make it into a complete narrative as a hardcover book. So you got one story, and he makes money on it as a weekday newspaper, a weekend newspaper, as a filmmaker with newsreels, and eventually when he gets into radio, uh, he does it with radio as well, and then as a book. So you get this really smart idea of instead of trying to venture out into other random businesses, he's staying in the same core business, taking the thing he's really good at, which is writing and storytelling and saying, okay, how many ways can we capitalize on this core strength? Now, having said all that, the business empire is doing well, but it's still not the thing he cares about the most. So if there's something that he believes in that would be bad for business, he'll say or do it anyway. And you see this with World War One. Hearst was basically an isolationist, especially when it comes to Europe, and he was very opposed to the US getting involved in World War I. And at first, this is fine, But as the war drums get louder and louder, people are enthusiastically getting behind the war, and they're really bothered by his continued support for non-involvement. And so there are boycotts, circulation drops a little, and where he really loses out is with advertisers who don't want to be associated with what is coming to be considered an anti-patriotic newspaper. The federal government even sends secret agents to investigate if he was a German spy, which he was not, but it tells you something that they're, they're looking into this. So he's losing money while this is happening, but he continues to oppose World War One. And the thing that really saves him is the U.S. actually getting into the war. Because once the U.S.A. was fully committed, he basically has to throw up his hands and say, "Okay, I opposed it, but we're in the war now and I support us winning, which relieves a lot of pressure. People say, "Okay," And so people start coming around. Circulation improves, revenue returns, and the 1920s are really prosperous for Hearst. The American economy is booming, and this would be the first time in his life where he's really earning lots of money, and I mean lots of money. You know, previously he had just been taking from the family fund or borrowing, but now he's actually generating a lot of revenue. He also expands into film production, starts a studio called Cosmopolitan Studios, and he partners with MGM and ends up becoming one of the great Hollywood film producers. And so as I said, he's making money, but he's also, you know, all this stuff costs money. You don't just start up a film production company with no costs. And so in the past, he had been asking his parents to fund his endeavors and he'd been borrowing copiously from banks in order to fund this expansion of his empire. And he can afford to do that because people will give him money as long as the business empire seems like it's doing well. So this goes all the way until the great depression. And when it first hits in 1929, Hearst actually does all right. The stock market is tanking, but he doesn't hold a lot of stocks. He's mostly invested in real estate and in his media businesses. And so for the first few years of the Great Depression, he's doing okay, but as time goes on, as the years pass, it starts trickling down because businesses don't have the money to advertise in newspapers anymore. And so by the mid-1930s, the revenue of his newspapers is down by more than 40%. And that creates a problem because Hearst was up to his eyeballs in debt. He's one of the most prolific borrowers of all time. Part of that, as I said, was expanding into new businesses, starting film studios, starting new newspapers and magazines. But part of it also comes from his personal addiction to collecting art and building magnificent buildings. So let's dive into that a little bit. Let's talk about that. Because I actually think this is a big part of his legacy. So the Hearst Estates, he had a castle in Bavaria, a castle in Wales, a huge estate in the mountains of Northern California, a 90 bedroom house in Santa Monica, a huge home in Beverly Hills, a big ranch in Mexico, numerous apartments, houses, and properties in New York City, and his magnum opus, his estate on the central California coast, now known as Hearst Castle. So his family had this ranch land in central California, and it's in the middle of nowhere. It's next to a little town called San Simeon. It's basically exactly halfway between San Francisco and Los Angeles. Today, it's still kind of in the middle of nowhere, Uh, It takes you today a four-hour drive from either L.A. or from San Francisco. And back then, you can imagine, they didn't have great highways and cars that went 65 miles an hour. So it took even more than four hours to get from one of the major California cities to his estate. And at first, it's just ranch land, and he loves going there to camp because it's really beautiful. It's got these hills that are almost mountains. It's got the beach. It's got sand dunes. It's got grasslands. It's kind of got everything in one. So there's this part of the property that's perched up on a hill. It's really beautiful. You can look down and see the coast from there. And he loves to go camping there and decides, I'm gonna build my dream house in this exact spot. And so he builds this castle, it's called Hearst Castle. Although if you look at it, it doesn't really look like a castle. It looks more like a cathedral. And if you go to California, you have to go. I, I know I said it's in the middle of nowhere and it is kind of a drive from either LA or San Francisco, but it's worth going to. I mean, he builds one of the most beautiful estates in the world. I think it's breathtaking. I've been, I love it. So as I said, the central building looks like a giant cathedral. It's kind of in a Spanish Mediterranean style. And it's surrounded by these beautiful guest lodgings that would be amazing mansions in their own right. And there's three of them sitting around it. And so it's beautiful. It has dozens and dozens of bedrooms. But as I said, it's in the middle of nowhere. So he needs to make it an attractive place for others to come visit him. So he builds all these attractions. He builds what I think is the most beautiful outdoor swimming pool in the world. And then he also builds what I think is the most beautiful indoor swimming pool in the world. He has the world's largest private zoo, complete with bears, lions, giraffes, monkeys, a cheetah, a leopard, bobcats, cougars, bison, antelope, reindeer, llamas, kangaroos, a wallaby, a tapir, sheep, goats, and an elephant. He's got a 50-person movie theater loaded with the latest movies. He's got tennis courts. He's got croquet. He's got it all. And one of my favorite stories is that he would have tennis tournaments, and at the end, a butler would bring down a silver platter full of expensive jewelry and watches and nice things for everyone to have as a party favor, and the winner of the tennis tournament got first pick of all this jewelry. And so this cool environment where, you know, you can go horseback riding, you can go to the zoo, you can play tennis, you can go swimming, this works. And throughout the 20s and 30s, he's getting a bunch of people to come visit him. In the kind of early to mid-20s, it's more of a newspaper guy hang out, right? His business associates will come up 10 or 20 at a time on the weekend and visit him. And then, uh, starting in the late twenties and through the thirties, it becomes more of a Hollywood hangout. And that's because, you know, a, he's becoming a Hollywood executive. He started his studio. Um, but it's more than that. So he was married to Millicent Wilson, but he starts an affair with this woman named Marion Davies. And she was another chorus girl, an 18 year old chorus girl that he had a type. You have to give him that. And over time, he's basically unwilling to leave his family, so he never divorces Millicent. But Marion becomes his de facto wife. She's the one that he spends all of his time with. And he makes her into a movie star. He, uh, he turns her into a, a big Hollywood actress and has her star in all of the movies that he produces. And you know, he, he does, as this happens, this transition to Marion Davies essentially becoming his wife happens, he does maintain a relationship with Millicent. They're friends. It's not that she was unhurt. She talks about the loneliness, the hurt, the embarrassment. I mean, you know, she, she doesn't like him having this very public affair with this other woman. But they come to an understanding. Uh, they raise their kids together. They will see each other over Christmas and at official functions and things like that. And so they they eventually kind of come out into being friends. But because he is spending all his time with Marion Davies, this actress, uh, in the late 20s and 30s, Hearst Castle is the place to go. For the who's who of Hollywood. So Charlie Chaplin, Clark Gable, Cary Grant, all the big actors, actresses, and directors are coming up on the weekends to go to Hearst Castle. And it's not just Hollywood. He was also visited there by Winston Churchill, Calvin Coolidge, Charles Lindbergh, and other public famous dignitaries and politicians. So it was a truly amazing, amazing place, but as you might imagine, it cost a fortune to build and maintain. And he's constantly building. You know, he'll have a fireplace built and say, actually, I think it should be on the other wall. So they completely demolish the fireplace, put in a new fireplace on the other wall, move the chimney. He comes in a month later and says, I think I was wrong. Can you move the fireplace back to the original wall? And he just loved to always be working on, always improving and, and, uh, and working on these estates. And in addition to all this building, he's got an addiction for collecting. He would look through catalogs and buy European art every single day. Every day, he set aside time to look through these catalogs. And it's not so much paintings, although he did have some very famous paintings. Most famously, he has Napoleon looking at the Sphinx, which is one of my favorite paintings ever. But he's not big into collecting paintings. He's mostly into decorative art and antiquities. So think candlesticks, tables, chairs, window frames, moldings, wood paneling, statues, vases, tiles. Uh, sometimes he would even you know, be touring Europe, and he'd be in a cathedral or a monastery or a castle... And he'd look at a room and go, I love this room, I want the entire room. And so they would take down the entire thing, strip out all the window frames, all the furniture, all the art, and uh, and he would buy all of it and they would ship it over and he would basically reassemble it as a new room on one of his estates. So this is a complete addiction. There's some stuff that he would buy that would be shipped to him and it would just sit in a warehouse and he would never even see it. And by the end, his collection was worth millions of dollars in 1920s dollars. Today it would have been worth hundreds of millions of dollars, even approaching probably a billion dollar collection of art and antiquities. It was by far the greatest art collection of the time. You know, there were others who were close-ish, like Rockefeller, but um, Hearst certainly had the most extensive art collection of the time. His closest competitors would have been places like the Louvre or the Smithsonian. So, okay, as you can imagine, assembling a billion dollar art collection, building all these estates as well as buying more newspapers, starting a movie studio, all this. He's just borrowing a ton of money to finance all this. And so in 1937, it's the middle of the Great Depression. His business incomes are way down and uh, he just can't borrow anymore. You know, I mentioned revenues are down because of the depression. There's also another reason that he is losing money and that's because he had launched another one of his unprofitable political crusades. And this time it was anti-communism. He had launched the first red scare in the, in the 1930s. So he's sending journalists undercover to catch and publicly out communist academics and government officials. And this makes for good headlines. It creates a lot of stir. It does get some readership, but it also alienates a lot of his traditional base which was working-class, pro-union, pro-labor Democrats. And it especially alienates his considerable Jewish readership because those communists in academia and government were disproportionately Jewish. And add to that the fact that he had as columnists Benito Mussolini and Adolf Hitler. And you can see why, you know, the guy who is outing communists who has Adolf Hitler as a writer uh, might not be popular with the Jewish community. And Hearst was not himself a Nazi or a fascist, but he liked to have notable people in his columns. And Hitler was the most notable man of his age. He, he was the biggest celebrity. So the fact that he was writing for Hearst newspapers was kind of a big deal. Also, you know, I don't want to give Hearst totally a pass. He thought that fascism had done some good things in Italy and Germany. Not appropriate for America, but look, it turned around those countries a little bit, right? And he also, you know, he met with Hitler and he thought that he could have an impact on him. He thought that the anti-Semitic stuff that he had said when he was first coming up, you know, he said that was just to get some attention. I would know all about that. I'm sure that's behind him. You know, He worked in Hollywood and newspapers, so he was friendly with a number of of Jewish people. And they kind of asked him to liaison for them. They said, could you talk to Hitler when you talk to him about this whole anti-Semitic thing? Could you get him to calm down a little bit? So he does. He brings it up. And Hitler doesn't give a a very impressive response, but still Hearst thinks that it's not that big of a deal. He really doesn't think he's going to do anything too aggressive against the Jews. Um, And that goes all the way up until Kristallnacht. Uh, Kristallnacht is when he finally drops Hitler as a columnist, but yeah, he, he, you know, he stuck with him as as a columnist for quite a long time. And he also, you know, he would have the other side on as well. Uh, Leon Trotsky was someone who wrote regularly for his newspapers Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt also. So he just liked big, notable people. But anyways, his flirtation, I guess you could say with fascism combined with his red scare, anti-communism, it alienates a lot of Jewish readers and not just Jewish readers. A lot of his working class, Italian, Irish, and German and Slavic uh, base was very pro-labor and pro-union. And, you know, labor unions was where a lot of communist foment was coming from so this is creating a lot of conflict with his traditional base his traditional readership and so his circulation is dropping and he doesn't care he really believes in this anti-communism he resents the fact that communists are trying to infiltrate and subvert american institutions so he goes ahead but you know it's driving him bankrupt he's, he's losing lots of money and so in 1937 he just he can't borrow anymore Uh, he he has borrowed so much. So his company goes into receivership and the banks take it over and they demote him from being CEO. They take half of his art collection and sell it off to, to pay off his debts. They start selling some of his less successful newspapers. They cut salaries and they put the company through this really severe austerity. And this works in a way, uh, in, in the coming six years, they do eventually manage to make Hearst's corporation profitable, but they also greatly reduce the size. Of his business empire. So after six years, he takes it over again in 1943 or 44. And at that point, World War II is happening, which kind of papers over the whole Red Scare anti communist thing. A lot of his readers return, and uh, his business empire is more successful from that time until the end of his life. He still would maintain day to day control basically up until the very end. You know, he slows down a little bit in the last couple months of his life. Um, but up until then, he himself would go offer very detailed feedback on articles, headlines and layout, but he has heart disease. And, uh, in 1951 at the age of 88, he passes away. After his death, the business actually does considerably better. It was no longer a vehicle for his personal ambitions and opinions to influence American society and policy. But now, you know, with him out of the way, It's just a money-making venture and they have great assets. They got great newspapers, great magazines. And so it grows and grows. And today it's one of the largest private corporations in the world with annual revenues of more than $10 billion. And it owns a lot of things that you've probably heard of. Cosmopolitan magazine owns 50% of A&E network, 25% of ESPN. And it's a big part of his legacy that still stands. So what can we learn from the life of William Randolph Hearst? I shared a few lessons last time, but let me add a few things here. The first is you've got to really champion a cause if you want to be involved politically. I've seen a number of people float uh, different celebrities and say that they should become politicians, like The Rock and Oprah. And on a couple of occasions, at least with The Rock, it seems like he maybe uh, considered it. Like, hey, you know, Donald Trump was a celebrity, it worked for him. Everyone loves me, The Rock. Uh, everyone loves Oprah, like for sure they would succeed as politicians. If Donald Trump could succeed and he's very divisive and very controversial. Why not a less controversial figure that everyone loves like the rock. But the thing that you learn from Hearst is that in order to succeed in that world, you really have to champion a cause. You have to be willing to be controversial and not just willing to be controversial, but you got to lean into the controversy, right? You have to really take over and own one of these big causes, one of these big movements. It doesn't work to be harmless, to be sanitized, to be safe. And so if you're someone who has been successful in media and you're interested in turning that into influence politically, then just know that. That you're gonna have to be willing to be controversial and champion a cause. You can't just rise above it all. That's just not how it works. The other lesson is, if you're going to do that, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are, how big your platform is, how many people you have access to, you have to be willing to ally yourself with entrenched powers and not try and do it all on yourself, at least on a certain level. So Hearst tried to avoid and distance himself from the democratic party. And that's what defeated him every single time. So you gotta be willing to make a deal with the devil a little bit. If you're going to go that route and just be ready that if you're going to go into politics, yes, you can use your platform to be independent and speak directly to people. But if you try to completely avoid political parties and entrenched powers, It's probably going to end up for you the same way it ended up for Hearst on the business side. Hearst was a micromanager when it came to his newspapers and his content. Like he really cared about making excellent newspapers, magazines, and movies. He would get his hands dirty with red ink. And if you don't love to get into the minutia, if you don't love to micromanage your business, then that might mean that you don't love the business and you're probably not going to be as successful as someone who does. And then the last thing, my last takeaway that I'll point out from the life of William Randolph Hearst, is this is someone who knew how to spend his money. Like he was a great spender. Yes, he spent too much, and that did lead to kind of his his downfall at the end, at least for a time. But at least he did it well. Like what can you tell me about the house of Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates? Is anyone going to take their house and turn it into? one of the most visited state parks in the US once they die? Do they have the largest private zoo in the world at their estates? Can their private collection, you know, stand toe to toe with that of the Louvre? Does all of Hollywood come up to the house of Jeff Bezos on the weekends to party? Um, Like, no, I think so many people have lost the ability to spend well, to build things that are beautiful and stand the test of time. So if you're listening to this and you're someone with money, I hope it inspires you to live a more creatively interesting uh, life. Build something that lasts. Go, go visit Hearst Castle and then start thinking about your own legacy and what am I going to leave behind that is going to be as as beautiful and long-lasting and desirable as this. One last little takeaway. This is the most random one, but it was interesting to me. There's this quote. Let me see if I can find the quote. Uh, here's what it says. This is, this is The Chief by David Nassau. And it says often the tallest man in the room with vivid blue eyes and a lifelong habit of staring unblinkingly at his interlocutor. He struck many visitors to San Simeon as cold and distant. Now, um, take out the cold and distant part. I think it's so interesting that he did the Steve jobs thing. He stared at people and you hear this about a lot of successful people. Uh, people sometimes refer to it as the tractor beam with Bill Clinton. Uh, so he did the same thing. He would just stare at you. And people said it felt like he didn't know about anything else in the world. He shut out the entire world around and focused all of his attention on you. And Steve Jobs did that. And apparently William Randolph Hearst did it as well. And so, you know, this is one of those things you have to be careful because it says that people found it uh, cold and distant and like a little bit weird, but also has this intensifying effect that, okay, I feel like this conversation is really important. So if you really need to get through to someone, that's very effective. So there you go. If you're looking for a little hack, you can do the Steve jobs or the Hearst stare, just stare directly into their eyes. And again, caution. It can be weird. It can be off-putting, but it can also get through to people and it leaves an impact on them. So there you go. Those are my takeaways. I hope you enjoyed this. I thought William Randolph Hearst is a really interesting guy. So until next time, thanks for listening to how to take over the world.